Hello, Scrappers. Juro here. We are less than a month away from our three-year anniversary. It feels impossible that we've been going that long already, but we have. And with the completion of Book 3, we've now fully finished the entire first half of the Iron Gods campaign path. So now, in order to make sure that everyone is fully up to speed on three books and three years worth of the various quests and adventures the very capable four have been on, we've decided this week to release this little recap, which several members of the community have suggested. And speaking of our community, you guys continue to be amazing and just so supportive, and we hope to have plenty more content to reward you with in year four of the pod. We're still actively working on updating our site, and recently we were forced to give up our title of slowest website on the internet. We've also got our merch store back up with a few new items and all of the old favorites. Finally, the last two parts of our eight-part run of a three-hour Call of Cthulhu module for McFib will be releasing later this month, so keep an eye on your podcatcher of choice for them. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review if you haven't already. They really do help out the pod more than you would think. Uh, that's about all I have, so I'm going to turn it over to Numeria's number one source for fair and balanced news, Hoskett of the Old Stag Daily. Ooh, that doesn't seem right. Okay. That's probably not good, but sure, let's turn it over to Hoskett. Your old pal Hoskett here, editor, publisher, and proprietor of the Old Stag Daily, the most trusted name in Numerian journalism. I have been tasked by certain interested parties to bring you up to date on the story of the group some of you are calling the Very Capable Four, for reasons unknown, and so I shall do just that. Be warned, unless you're up to date on the machine opposition broadsheet, you would be ill-advised to stop here. This here is spoiler country. First, a bird's eye view. For those of you who believe that if it is too long, you won't listen. Simply put, at the heart of Numeria is the Silver Mountain. Inside the Silver Mountain is a being calling itself Unity, which has designs on ascending to godhood with a great deal of accompanying tyranny. This being has spawned two children, Hellion and Cassandra Lee. Our villains defeated Hellion's attempts to gain enough power to challenge Unity for the throne and ascendancy to Godhood, saving the town of Torch and the village of Scrapwall in the process, and then they set off in search of Cassandra Lee. A number of them died in the process of determining that she is in fact dead, but has hidden the secrets to understanding and or defeating Unity in a device called a Neurocam in a Y-shaped valley called the Scar of the Spider. Some of them have returned, some have not. In hopes of protecting their home of Numeria, the heroes have now departed for that Y-shaped Valley in hopes of obtaining the Neurocam and finally understanding the true threat lurking inside the Silver Mountain. And now, for those of you with a bit more patience, 
a longer, more thorough version of our story. Our story begins, as epic yarns so often do, in a garbage dump. An alien artificial intelligence calling himself Hellion escaped from its creator, the mysterious being known only as Unity in the Silver Mountain, fled to the biggest pile of unholy alien metallic junk that it could find to celebrate his independence and begin an entirely separate reign of terror. There he found an ancient, gigantic piece of construction equipment buried beneath the ground and he decided, in all his infinite wisdom, that if he could kickstart the world's biggest, oldest excavator, he could head back to the Silver Mountain and destroy his creator, thereby ascending to some measure of godhood through a series of leaps in logic that I will neither waste your time nor mine attempting to force to make actual sense. In order to achieve his goal, Hellion assembled an army slash cult out of the various gangs and factions within said garbage dump. Two of the dump denizens managed to distinguish themselves, the cream rose to the top as it were. The first of these was an orc warrior named Kalgaria, a mighty gladiator in her own right, who wielded a strange device that looked like a wooden board with two dozen chihuahuas attached to it, but was somehow able to slice through enemies more effectively than even a magical sword. She took charge of the armies and set her sights on finding more allies for Hellion in his fight against Unity, and presumably everyone else in the world. One potential ally in particular, Hellion's apparent older sister Cassandra Lee, was of particular interest, for rumor had it that she had stolen all manner of secrets before she left Unity's control. Kogara set to work researching the location of this second potential Iron God. We'll get back to this particular item later on. The second garbage general was an android by the name of Meanda. Now, this devotee believed so fervently in Hellion's cause that she became a cleric devoted to the demented machine, and he actually granted her honest to Erastal divine powers, if you can believe that. She and a crew of Rustwall roustabouts took an evil but priceless alien artifact to the backwater village of Torch, which sits in the shadow of a hill with a giant purple flame on top, in order to suck up all that good good purple fire and mail it back to their god to help him get his recycled construction equipment start up off the ground. Extremely long story slightly less long, the refuse revengers burrowed their way under the Black Hill, found the ancient reactor responsible for the purple flame, and redirected that power outfit via the aforementioned artifact all the way back to their home in Scrapwall in the giant bulldozer sitting under the ground. The problem? That silly backwards town back on the surface had built their entire economy around the power the purple flame granted them, and without it they were in serious danger of scrutiny, invasion, and takeover from the Technic League. Said Technic League, of course, being the evil cabal of technology-obsessed wizards who have essentially seized control of the levers of government in our beleaguered nation of Numeria, reducing the Black Sovereign, our erstwhile monarch, to a gluttonous, drug-addicted figurehead. You don't want their attention, is what I'm saying. It's literally always bad news, as will be evidenced later on in this very tale. All of this is simply stage setting, however, in order to bring us up to the beginning of the story of the Very Capable Four, or as I know them, the true villains of the piece. It was market day in these ne'er-do-wells, a teenager in the middle of an, an ill-advised rebellious phase, the disgraced leader of a failed coup, a technology-smuggling rat, and by rat I mean in the literal sense, primarily at least, and a known anti-baby activist come together in the town of Torch at the promise of cold, hard cash. 4,000 gold to turn the flame back on, and 4,000 gold to rescue a town councilman who'd rushed off half-cocked into the face of danger and predictably never returned. This greedy gang headed under the mountain where they were temporarily blinded by a frog, and they befriended some people who'd recently murdered some townsfolk and then plunged into the real underbelly of the Black Hill, an ancient technological structure. 
Within, they were nearly killed by an alien rock monster, destroyed some defenseless skeletons, and got their collective faces punched by a disaffected intelligent alien zombie devotee of the god of pointless accidental death. Jumping ahead just a bit, these would-be heroes emerged from under the mountain with a huge pile of awful sacrilegious technological artifacts in the badly wounded form of one Connor Bain, the aforementioned impulsive councilman. They turned him over to the appropriate authorities, showing only a passing interest in his recovery, collected the first half of their bounty, illegally sold the technological artifacts to extraordinarily sketchy traveling salesman San Viltret, and then headed off to fritter away their ill-gotten gains at a house of gambling, run by notorious criminal garment Ulrith and his dear friend, secret priestess of Sugras, and the chapel of Rent Flesh, and technically spy Nick Shariel. After publicly embarrassing themselves and retiring to rest and engage in some light body horror, the band of baddies determined that the very same Garmin Ulrith was holding in a warehouse a hateful technological artifact that was sending power to Hellion hundreds of miles away in Scrapwall, and in the process making a third of the town sick. Unwilling to face the potential wrath of a crooked businessman on their own, these would-be heroes employed the services of an elderly woman to chase the aforementioned criminals out of town and recover the artifact, thereby disrupting Hellion's plans and putting the town of Torch in even more danger. The group eventually headed back into the ruin, betrayed their partner in crime slash part-time Technic League informant San Viltret, and found their ways to the apparent source of the town's trouble, as well as the missing Purple Flame, an ancient reactor room occupied by none other than Mayanda, the priestess of Hellion, I told you she would be back, who had a very cool haircut and an absurd understanding of morality and world events. The machine-loving miscreants ganged up on her, beat her unconscious, and threw her in a bag, if you can believe that. They relit the torch, re-emerged from the ruin under the hill, and rejoined the town as apparent saviors. Saviors who sucked up another 4,000 gold and probably absolutely shattered the Hamlet's economy. Though the immediate threat was well in hand, the encounter with Meander revealed a much larger array of troubles to the town. The previously described demonic being and its army of fanatics, for one, but also hints at a far greater threat elsewhere in Numeria growing in power and readying to do something. Something that would endanger the entire nation, if not the world as a whole. Never once to pass up a chance to loot a potentially profitable prospect, the so-called very capable four volunteered to abandon any responsibility that they may have to rebuild the town and head out across the country to fight a demon in a dump. There were a few digressions along the way, a hunt for a cybernetic pseudo-dragon to appease some, a grudge-holding group of Kellids, a late-night confrontation with Garmin Ulrith, who'd been partially transformed into a chitin by someone, mysterious, mysterious, a quick gang fight in a dilapidated Crusader's way station, and then they burst into the scene in the single most heavily populated junkyard known to humankind. Ever the poor judges of character, the angry adventurers quickly allied themselves with the weakest gang in all of Scrapwall, the Steelhawks, and managed to parlay this relationship into an opportunity to be nearly killed by a small, angry flock of birds. Like the bad piggies before them, they hastily constructed a defensive position in the vain hope of keeping the evil smilers, a gang of soothe-addicted self-surgery aficionados, at bay before wandering off to look at something shiny and leaving Clarence, the shirtless steelhawk brawler with a history of attacking avians, in charge. The shiny thing in this case being the clockwork chapel built out of pure garbage by a half-elf priest of Bri and fugitive from the law by the name of Nvaya. They, of course, became fast friends after a quick bout of almost killing one another, and established the Clockwork Chapel as a base of operations from which they would pursue the accumulation of <clears throat> Big Bad Daddy points. 
Some shadows took a moment out of their busy shadowing schedules to minish Asher in the night a bit, and we entered a long sequence of the four daddies getting progressively bigger and badder as they slayed a mutant manicure, forged an alliance with an army of anthropomorphic rodentii, escalated their gang war to previously unheard of levels, and demolished most of the actual freestanding knot made entirely of garbage structures and all of Scrapwall. In the process, they managed to kidnap a choker named Heath and experience a glimpse of their deepest and darkest fears courtesy of a strange alien creature, a creature that seemed to prey on Brixby's thoughts in particular. Such was the extent of the damage they caused that they drew the attention of the Lords of Rust, the primary gang-turned-army in Hellion service, and at an exactly as shady as it sounds night market, a goblin calling himself Jimmy Fame offered to broker a fight between the very capable four and the Lords of Rust providing a chance for the itinerant invaders to gain access to the most secure location the garbage pile had to offer, Hellion's Redoubt. The plan was hatched, the time was set, and the matchup was in the books. Kira the Fighting Child would brawl one-on-one -on -one with a giant gun-wielding troll named Hellscar. Long story short, despite extensive cheerleading, the literal child was defeated by the giant unkillable monster. The rest of the crew rushed down to her side and Dinvaya healed her wounds, and Hellion's soldiers brought the four to the Inner Sanctum to receive their prize, a meeting with the demon himself. Hellion appeared on a video screen demanding loyalty and received a verbal thrashing instead, and used some magical spell to harm and distract him. The very gullible four were distracted by a small group of minions while the other leader of the Lords of Rust, the already introduced orc warlord Kolgara, answered Hellion's summons, walked right through the party and out onto the battlefield where she took Dinvaya hostage. Arrangements were made for a repeat encounter, the entire party with their critical mass of daddy points against Kolgara, Hellskarg, and a couple of red shirts for the fate of the Cleric of Bry, amongst other things. The next day, the four brawling buddies were able to defeat the heads of the Lords of Rust, stealing the legendary magical Chihuahua stick in the process, and rescued Invaya from the clutches of an incompetent understudy who was failing to fill the position Maya had vacated via voyaging to Torch. Everyone returned to the Clockwork Chapel and went to bed, only to be awakened in the night by a group of Caligni assassins. You already know who won this particular battle. They took one of the Dark Creepers hostage, being deeply committed to the carceral aesthetic they'd established since assaulting the aforementioned android, and then went back to bed, content in the knowledge that the next day they would conduct a large-scale home invasion. That invasion went about as poorly as one could expect. The bad dads kicked in the front door, started smashing things as ruffians so often do, and then one of them, the metal-fisted name one named Vargas, who is probably my favorite of the group, giving his deeply entrenched distrust of technology, had his head smashed in by an angry Etna and one of her orc friends. They bravely ran away after that, back to the Clockwork Chapel, where Vargas's extraordinarily rude mother was there waiting. She'd had a vision, you see. Her son's semi-oracular powers were going to awaken any day, and she needed to be there to guide him. Of course, it's very difficult to guide people when they're already dead, so the sardonic senior citizen revived the fallen Kellid. He refused to go with her, opting instead to return to the place where he'd just been killed with the expectation that things would go better the second time around. Yada yada yada, fight fight fight, kill kill kill, the Lords of Rust go down one by one, and the invaders gradually find more and more pieces of the puzzle. A series of prayer books and journals, along with a technically spy Kalgara had been holding captive, revealed Hellion's true plans and his true nature. To drive the gigantic ancient excavator out of the scrap heap across Numeria and straight into the Silver Mount to crack open the colossal ruined spaceship like the egg that it may very well be. 
You see, Hellion was an artificial intelligence and semi-divine offspring of, of a much greater being that called itself Unity and was apparently trapped in that mountain, growing in power and biding its time. Hellion may have been a power-hungry demonic monster, but he was deathly afraid of his creator. If he could destroy Unity, he could do what it plans to do, ascend to true godhood, and seize ultimate power over all of Galarian, if not the entire physical universe, and possibly beyond. It was always clear that Hellion was not a prospective ally for the AI assassins, but the documentation his minions had assembled revealed that there was another, Cassandra Lee, a being Hellion considered his older sister, who had fled Unity at some point in the past with a huge cache of information on the Silvermount's defenses and the nature of Unity itself, stored in a blasphemous device known as a Neurocam. Hellion thought that she could be an ally in this war, and his minions had tracked her down to a distant town, a wonderful, forward-thinking, family-oriented town called Idenvay. The technically spy divulged that there had recently been a power shift at the top of the league. Zernabeth, the previously unassailable Irisani leader of the technological Texans, had recently been replaced by a man named Osman Zaidow, along with his Lieutenant Gartone, a master of the Numeria-wide spy network. Oh, and also the aforementioned Cassandra Lee, or perhaps just the stolen Neurocam, was priority number one for the League. Unfortunately for the League, but perhaps fortunately for everyone else, the Journal Jackers took the evidence and chased the spy out of the country, and the knowledge of Cassandra Lee's last known position with him. It was also around that time that Asher, probably the second least odious of the lot, revealed that he had been carrying under his hat a letter addressed to Cassandra Lee, which had apparently been passed down from drifter to drifter for years untold. After that, there was a climactic battle with a mechanical scorpion that the demonic AI lived inside, thereby supposedly saving a Numeria from the planet's least competent simulation of a megalomaniac, followed by a not-so-climactic battle with a cursed extraplanar invader named Zagmander the Blood Ghost, who didn't even get a chance to impregnate even one of our villains before she died, leaving only foreshadowing and disappointment behind. And then the very vicious victors made peace with the dark folk who tried to kill them earlier, accepting a modified tracking device which tantalizingly displayed a blinking dot somewhere in the Gorum pots in exchange for leaving at least some people alive in that ridiculous pseudo-town. They emerged victorious, with a new destination mine, gathered up Dinvaya, quickly installed a puppet government made of their friends and former hostages, and then headed back to Torch. It was there, in their erstwhile hometown, that the Hamlet Harangers discovered that the Technic League had taken a more active interest. They'd swept in, ostensibly looking for Sanville Tret, taken possession of the prisoner Mayanda, and left a gargoyle factogum named Sazaduk, who was not at all into jazz, to gather intelligence of the residents of the town and their comings and goings for reasons unknown. The metal-fisted one snuck out of town under the cover of darkness in order to explore his recently acquired divine powers in a move that proved once and for all that Mother always knows what's best. The others, accompanied by a recently recruited hooded child with a penchant for bothering poultry, robbed the government official and skipped town. Sazatuk tracked them down, attempted to arrest them, and was promptly fed to undead butterflies, while also being relieved of his incredibly valuable evil technological equipment. The nasty ne'er-do-wells arrived in Idenvay shortly thereafter, where yours truly immediately clocked them for the villains that they truly were. My protest went ignored, of course, and the group promptly trashed a local farm, killed a rare magical beast, and paraded its disembodied head throughout town, setting off an epidemic of nightmares amongst the local children. This somehow made our foolish town leaders trust them even more, as they revealed that the town had an issue with a Technic League spy, and that they'd arrested a strange being known as the Drifter for the crime, only to intercept a mechanical bird bearing a message to the League on the way out of town after the Drifter was already imprisoned. This Drifter, as it turned out, was an inevitable and 
extraplanar enforcer of order, who'd come in search of help after learning that Shadrax the Allmother, an ancient Zill Terror, was in the process of escaping her underground prison and was attacking a mining camp known colloquially as Party Town. The short attention span squad ran out of Idenvay, found Party Town devoid of life, and plunged into the mines where they were nearly killed several times, dragged into the walls, and rescued a mine guard named Basari, and eventually abandoned two of their own into a hostage situation with an Abadaran cleric and a promise of Zill eggs bursting from their chests in short order. The rest of the group ran back to Idenvay and dragged away the vast majority of the people who were actually capable of defending our town whilst it was under direct threat from the Technic League, mind you, to almost certainly die in said cave. Long story short, they all very nearly died in said cave, but managed to purge the threat of Shadrax and her infinite spawn through luck alone, sending the inevitable construct out of the material plane, and bringing back our foolish townsfolk somehow mostly unharmed, though permanently traumatized by the affair. It was after that side story that the meddling marauders remembered that they wanted to find the Technically spy and eventually tracked her to the far more wholesome group of visitors camped in the local lumberyard, a caravan of tchotchke peddling Varesians, one of whom was not like the others. No, I'm not talking about Evil Dag, if I'm speaking of Alaris Zaleshi, a traveling Zill player, Zill in these circumstances, being musical instruments rather than the extraplanar horror that they'd just dealt with. Uh, she was secretly scouting the area for the source of the mutagenic agents polluting the water and creating monstrous growth in the local wildlife on behalf of the Technic League. Of course, the ruffians beat her up horribly, forced her to tell them about the old well that led down into a Numerian ruin, stole her sweet, sweet boots, and then left her in the care of our ever-incompetent council member. Redfang, the very same man who decided to trust these malicious vagrants in the first place. That ended as well as we all expected. Zaleshi stole his weapon, embedded it in his, in his chest, and ran off into the woods to seek technically reinforcements. More on that later. The gleeful grave robbers, in the meantime, completely oblivious to the recent attempted murder of their dear friend, climbed down the well, fought a swarm of tiny machines, and found themselves in a small buried spaceship, specifically an ancient android foundry called the Aurora. They found a recording of a man named Furkish Shoud, who had reactivated the facility seven years before, and was there in search of something, talking to an invisible companion, Sahasho, an invisible stalker from the Plane of Air, who signed one of the worst contracts in the history of the Material Plane. They went further into the ruin, and were attacked by a small army of defective androids, sad wild constructs, the hopelessly ruined foundry had been printing ever since its reactivation, and their leader Seerath, a skilled assassin who'd been working to harness the power of her broken friends into a makeshift army in service of a voice that only she could hear in a desperate attempt to stop some outside force from taking her mind. Beyond those foes, and with some rubble and traps and things, were more familiar mechanical menaces, a detachment of gearsmen who were attempting, apparently, to secure the traitor they called Cassandra Lee. The very destructive Ford demolished these robots, perhaps the closest they've ever come to doing something actually heroic, discovered the remains of other, even more powerful robots that apparently had been destroyed in the place before, and finally found an ancient control room. There they met the aforementioned Sahasho, who informed them that his master Shoud had taken Cassandra Lee's dead body back home to a tower in the Smokewood a few days' journey to the east. Well, they bid our fair town goodbye and good riddance to them. Kira had a brief and menacing conversation with another set of shadows, and then the group rode on over to that forest, spending some quality time with some hill giants, destroyed another robot, and found a coven of hags who were terrorizing a semi-divine moth who could fly through space. That was a stroke of luck for them, making friends with a house-side lepidoptic netting themselves a safe place to stay in first-class tickets all around Numeria for the low, low price of turning off the constantly billowing exhaust pouring out of the tower that they were heading towards in the first place. Some people have all the luck. They went into the tower looking for Cassandra Lee and instead found robots, ghosts, and traps. Traps enough to kill Aluin, the weird blonde one. 
They came back here, of course, interrupted Red Fang's inexplicably long-term care, drained our diamond dust resources, and went back to the tower for more robots, traps, and ghosts, including the ghost of Fergus Shout, who was none too happy to have visitors. The band of burglars bashed their way up through the tower, destroying property, ruining priceless stones, and stealing everything that wasn't nailed down, and getting their butts kicked by Fergus's ghost until they found their collective way through a secret door and plunged down, down, down into the tower basement. It was there that they found the most sensitive of Shout's labs and research, Frida Damon, chatted with an imprisoned worm that walks named Nargen Harovex, and finally located the corpse of Cassandra Lee. This triggered a final, decisive battle with Shout and his prized possession, a memory extraction robot, during which the rat-like criminal one died of some imaginary nonsense, but the rest of the crew managed to emerge victorious. They retrieved Cassandalee's body and, as a bonus, the skull of Mr. Shoud, and a machine containing the memories Shoud was able to extract from the android before the trap she had installed in her own brain triggered and killed the trap-obsessed, accidental death-worshipping wizard in a final burst of poetic justice. Furthermore, they learned from that recovered device that Cassandalee had worshipped Unity as a god until she discovered that it was a petulant liar, in her words, a tyrant bent on sub subjugating the entire world at a bare minimum. She fled and ran as long as she could, stashing her stolen neurocam in a Y-shaped valley called the Scar of the Spider in the Feldales, before running to the Aurora where Unity's minions finally caught up with and killed her, but were unable to extract her body as they were too far from Unity's control by then and had lost direction. The group had a new destination then, but first they needed to carry their fallen member back to our town once more, suck up more of our valuable resources, and bring the Ratman back to life. When he returned, he was treated to a vision, an understanding of the the threads binding Furcus Shout to the plane of the living after death, for ghosts would always come back after slain unless the tissues connecting them to the material plane were properly severed. They were to return to the tower, destroy his toys, cut those threads, and tear down the tower itself to exorcise the spirit. Little did they know, in the days since their trip to the Aurora, another group had visited Sahasho, seen Fergus's little video, and journeyed out to the Smokewood. As the off-dying Odysseers returned to the choking tower via the front door, this second group was headed directly into the basement via a secret passage in the woods. Interestingly, upon waking from their first rest since the death of the Mouseman, the normally pious Asher found that he no longer had access to the favor of his god Chaldira Zuzaristan, and was unable to summon any of his divine spellcasting. Consequences, it seemed, of leaving the Ratman to rush into battle alone and be struck down. Our four fiendish friends worked their way up to the top of the tower, freeing a group of imprisoned Azers and destroying numerous remaining unholy robots before making their way back down to the basement to hit the final piece of technology binding Shout into this world, the smoke furnace itself, which was incidentally the thing that our butterfly friend had asked them to deal with several deaths ago. Down in that basement, however, they met with an unexpected surprise. In the pneumotechnic recovery lab, where Brixby had just recently died, Nick Shariel, one-time employee of Garmin Ulrath and double spy for the Technic League and the Chapel of Rent Flesh, a cult dedicated to achieving perfection via pain and mutilation, was there searching for the body of an android with a newly minted Apostle Velstrak and Alaris Zaleshi, along with one of the half-formed androids from the Wreck of the Aurora. They engaged in the requisite posturing and lying to one another, but Nick Shariel was honest about one thing, she had no interest in killing any of them simply taking the body. As is inevitable, a fight ensued, Alwyn dropped the enemies into a pit, and the good guys, if you can call them that, and still look at your reflection in the morning, were getting the long end of the stick. The priestess implored them, quite simply, allow her a minute to examine the body unmolested and she would walk away. The fight needn't escalate. The very vainglorious four assumed that they were winning, however, declined and proceeded to get their butts kicked nearly to the point of full party death before Brixby was able to dimension door free of the battle. Asher, it should be noted, refused the spell-based rescue and stayed behind. While three members of the party were outside trying to recover, Asher faced Nixariel alone. It went poorly. 
She magically removed his skin, but as promised, she did not kill him. Instead, she delivered him some mysterious message, gathered her ally, and quit the tower. The party reunited, healed, didn't honk any of our diamond dust this time, thankfully, felt bad together, and rigged the choking tower's power source to suck the entire structure into the plane of fire. It was melodramatic and wasteful, but at least the job was done. After that, the party decided the Neurocam could wait, as they'd successfully kept Cassandra Lee's body and thus the requisite intelligence from the Technique, and they could finally investigate that blinking dot they'd known about for an entire book. Long Dreamer carried them over to the Gorum Pops, dropped them off, and the sinister side quest squads schlepped their way into yet another partially buried Androffin vessel, this time the ruins of the Dusklight, which had recently surfaced thanks to a mudslide. They climbed in through the broken planetarium, turned the power and fake gravity back on, and found one of the rarest of Numeria's cursed technological artifacts, a potentially functional vessel buried deep inside the wreck. But to get it out, they needed to climb down into a maintenance hatch which was teeming with irradiated dead. Asher, acting much more recklessly than he did before, rushed in ahead of his friends and was cornered by the zombies and killed before they could get to him. This time, well, the gunslinger had specifically asked that the others not bring him back should he fall. So they didn't. They had Long Dreamer bring them back to Torch, had a funeral, and buried him in the garden behind a mysteriously vacant stately home they were squatting in. Now, they have a potential alliance with a one-time visitor to Idenvay, a machine-hating snake man named Tarazi, a line on a potential ship, and a mission to track down the missing Neurocam and the Scar of the Spider, and with it finally learn the truth about Unity, the mysterious artificial being growing inside the Silver Mount. And that's where we are now, as they say. Don't forget to tip your servers. Stay tuned for more morally abhorrent adventuring antics courtesy of whatever this galloping gang calls themselves these days. Praise Arastal and stay out of my town. I'm going out for some fresh air. Property of Network Against the Machine LLC, all rights reserved. Pathfinder and the Iron Gods Adventure Path are property of Paizo Publishing. See their website for more details. Theme Against the Machine was written and performed by your own Zach. See the show notes for additional music and sound licensing. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to leave us a review. <laughs> what on Galarian is that? There's some sort of flaming metallic object flying through the sky. It's it's heading right for my house. What's that it says on the side? Property of the whale doll, please return if found. What sort of nonsense is that? Return to whom? My poor house. This was probably the fault of those blasted adventurers. Somehow.